Welcome to another episode of Criminal Broads, a true crime podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. My name is Tori Telfer. I'm your faithful host. I've written a book about female serial killers called Lady Killers, and I am currently working on a book about con women, which is proving to be so much fun. I'm loving the research, and I hope you'll check it out when it comes out in approximately 10 million years because I have so much work to do first. Um, Today, we are embarking on our second episode of a little sub-series of the podcast. So if you remember, on episode 17, we started occasionally doing an episode on a crime-fighting broad rather than a criminal broad. So a wild woman on the right side of the law, I guess you could say. Um, I'm not going to do them every other episode or anything like that, but I like to throw them in to kind of spice up the narrative and shine a spotlight on some of the women who are working against crime and not necessarily for, you know, huge organized criminal syndicates like our girl Griselda Blanco of episode 18. So today I'm very excited to tell you the story of the second ever crime fighting broad of this podcast, who is a woman totally inspiring and very much forgotten by history, which as you probably know by now is one of my favorite combos. Um, I want to cite my source for this episode right up top, just in case you don't see it in the show notes. I always put my sources in the show notes, by the way, if you're curious. But uh, this episode's source is very special. It's a book written by this broad's grandson. So the book is called Invisible, and it's by Stephen L. Carter, who's written a lot of books. He's an excellent writer, and it actually uh, came out just this past December, December 2018. So if you want to hear about, uh, if you want to hear more about this woman after the episode, please check out his book. Okay, that's all I have to say. I hope everyone's doing well. Spring is coming. Aren't we so happy? Let's dive into the story. Um, We are going to a time when, oh man, America was crazy. We've been in this time period before. The 1920s, 1930s is when most of the action's taking place. So we've got prohibition, we've got bootlegging, we've got this crazy new music emerging called jazz, and we've got a lot of crime, and then on the other side of the aisle, we got people who are coming up to fight this crime. I'm giving you too much detail. (laughs) Let's go. a young Sicilian boy named Charles Luciano stepped onto the streets of Manhattan for the first time ever and realized that he could use the idea of fear to make himself some money. 
First, he told smaller kids that he would protect them from the horrible fists of bullies as they walked to school, but only if they paid him for it. Then, he dropped out of school and realized that he could make $7 a week working an honest job, or $244 in a single go after winning a game of dice. His mind was made up then. He'd never play by the rules again. As he told a friend, Who wants to wind up being a crumb? I'd rather end up dead. It wasn't long before young Charles's skills—gambling, extortion, intimidation—were being used in a more organized capacity. He rose up the ranks of the local Italian mafia quickly by cracking a few skulls, double-crossing a few capos, and, once, casually and conveniently excusing himself to go to the restroom seconds before his dinner companion was riddled with bullets. When Prohibition came along in the 1920s, the timing couldn't have been better for Charles, and he became a bootlegging millionaire fast. Of course, he had his enemies. But when a group of men beat him, stabbed him, and left him for dead on a lonely Staten Island beach, and he survived it, he earned his nickname, Lucky. Lucky Luciano the man who would eventually create the modern American mafia, found himself rising through the ranks fast, getting closer and closer to that most dangerous and coveted position, capo de capi, the boss of bosses. But he saw that the current boss of bosses was resented, hated, and eventually, under Lucky's orders, murdered. Lucky didn't believe that all power should be centralized in one man, well, at least not so obviously. The former boss of bosses had been in the process of dividing the mafia into various crime families before Lucky had him taken out, so Lucky continued the organization, establishing a board of directors called the Commission, inheriting the crime family that would eventually become known as the Genovese family, and humbly declining to take the Capo de Capi title for himself. Instead, he called himself simply the Chairman. Amidst all this, he was untouchable. He was slippery. He was lucky. It was obvious to anyone paying attention that he was involved in a ton of crime, but none of the authorities in New York could link him to anything. And so Lucky Luciano continued on his merry way, organizing capos, ordering hits, extorting any small business owner who crossed his path. It was going to take something extraordinary to stop his string of luck. Celestial so bodies break down on me. Oh, I'm hot and cold and hot and bothered. Yeah, 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 yeah. A ricochet around in my mind, and here nothing I see. You walk in a tyro. Two years after Lucky Luciano was born in Italy, a little girl was born in Atlanta. Her parents were terrified that she wouldn't make it. They'd already had two children die in infancy, and they were so nervous that this baby would leave them too that they waited two whole weeks to give her a name. Her parents, William and Addie Hunton, were influential black activists who'd recently moved to the city. William was the international secretary for the YMCA, which was a powerful organization at the time, and Addie gave speeches on motherhood and race all over the country. They knew that Atlanta wasn't exactly the greatest place in the world to be black in 1899, but it wasn't the worst either. 
The city had a thriving black middle class and a vibrant commercial scene where white and black merchants bought and sold and traded peacefully, at least on the surface. Sometimes, unsurprisingly, that peaceful-looking surface was disturbed. A few months before their baby girl was born, the ugly racism that simmered beneath the city burst out when a black man named Sam Hose was viciously lynched by a white mob, and parts of his body were sold at shops around the city the next day. William and Addie were shaken and sickened by the news, but they were also determined to stay. They had just moved there, they were about to have a baby, and they believed in the future. They were scared, of course, too scared to name their child even, but they clung to that belief, and two weeks after their daughter was born, they finally christened her, Eunice Roberta. With their newborn, they moved into a beautiful 12-room home in the 4th Ward, surrounded by other prominent Black families, like the parents of Walter Francis White, who'd grow up to lead the NAACP. By 1903, Eunice had a little brother, Alpheus. By 1906, the violence was back. For a long time, whispers had been spreading through Atlanta that the black middle class was there to take white middle class jobs. And before long, a riot was breaking out, and the fourth ward, where Eunice lived, began to burn. According to Hunt and family legend, the rioters stopped one house away from theirs. This time, Addie and William reacted differently to the racialized violence. When the gunshots stopped echoing and the fires died down, they realized that their dream of Atlanta was just that, a dream. And so they moved away. So many of their neighbors moved, too, that Atlanta papers started publishing editorials begging black professionals to move back to the city, saying basically, everything is going to be okay from now on. But it was too little, too late for the Huntons, and by 1907, they were settled in Brooklyn. That same year, Eunice told a friend that she wanted to be a lawyer when she grew up. When asked why, she said, well, to make sure the bad guys go to jail. She didn't know that right as her family set foot on New York soil, a little Sicilian boy and his family were also arriving in the city, and that he was about to do everything he could to be one of the bad guys. Decades later, Eunice's grandson would describe her family as conservative and traditionalist, but these traits did not lead to passivity or acceptance. The Huntons were fighters, perseverers, persuaders. They stayed cool under pressure, and they worked hard for what they wanted. Nowhere was this clearer than in the lives of Eunice's grandparents, three of whom had been slaves and one of whom had escaped from slavery three separate times before buying his own freedom, heading north, and then making a dangerous journey back into the south to buy his brother's freedom, too. William and Addie had learned their fortitude from their parents and probably their strong faith, too. They believed that their values were the best way for Black Americans at large to live. Addie especially was passionate about the idea that strong, stable families were necessary for Black progress and that Black women were destined to be the moral center of all this progress. To be the moral center, they needed to be strong and virtuous and married with kids forever. 
It was a bit ironic, then, that both Addie and William left their kids alone for long periods of time as they attended to their own successful careers. At one point, Addie took Eunice and Alpheus to Germany with her for a year and a half, while William stayed behind in the States. At other times, William was the one gone for months on end. Sometimes the children stayed with family friends while both parents traveled. Eunice was growing into a clever, charming girl who could be something of a show-off around her friends and who didn't always realize that her sharp tongue could actually hurt people's feelings. Alpheus was growing into a studious boy who liked to grapple with big ideas. Their family was happy, sometimes, but they seemed cursed with bouts of poor health. By the spring of 1914, William was coughing up blood and was soon diagnosed with advanced tuberculosis. Two years later, he sent Eunice and Alpheus off to school after laying his hands on their heads and praying for them, and then he took his last breath. The fall after her father's death, Eunice enrolled at Smith College. Tuition cost $200 a year, which was actually quite expensive for the time. She majored in government, she was on the debate team, she made the honor roll, and by 1921, she was graduating with both her bachelor's and her master's degree, only the second woman since Smith's founding in 1871 to manage both in four short years. Since the Huntons had always been such high achievers, it was common for them to get written about in the black press, but Eunice's dual degree was such a big deal that this time the white papers wrote about her, too. Eunice and her degrees returned to New York smack dab in the middle of the Harlem Renaissance, and soon she was rubbing elbows with writers like Zora Neale Hurston and being inducted into societies that included people like Langston Hughes. She found herself with all this intellectual horsepower, but wasn't sure where to use it at first. She wrote short stories and book reviews. She took a job as a social worker. When, as a social worker, she was asked to open Harlem's first free dental clinic, she did so with panache and met a rather intriguing fellow along the way. His name was Lyle Carlton Carter. He was an immigrant from Barbados. He owned Harlem's most successful dental practice. He was tall and handsome, and he had a swoony habit of reciting poetry to those he wanted to woo. And woo Eunice he did. They were married on November 26, 1924, moved into their Harlem love nest, had a baby boy, Lyle Jr., and became fixtures in the glamorous upper echelons of Harlem society, a glittering world where matrons kept a very close eye on who was who and what was what and how many people were invited to the wedding reception versus the service and whether or not young wives were throwing the correct sorts of parties. Eunice found herself suddenly shuffled directly into a life of wifehood, motherhood, and soirees. If she looked down the road, she could see herself attending and hosting soirees, the correct type of soirees, forever. But she didn't want that. So she remembered what she'd said so many years ago about making sure the bad guys went to jail, and in 1927, she enrolled at Fordham Law School. Fordham Law School was a tough nut to crack in 1927. If you missed three classes, you'd get an F in the course. One third of the entire student body 
didn't make it to graduation. And by the time Eunice enrolled, the school had only very recently gotten a woman's bathroom. Yes, female law students were quite the exceptional sight in 1927, as they'd only been allowed to enroll at Fordham since 1917. Black law students were even more recent. They'd been barred from enrolling until the early 1920s. Even though she was a rare bird on campus, Eunice adored studying the law. Finally, here was something that was a match for her intelligence, something she could really chew on. Now, as her grandson and biographer, Stephen L. Carter, points out, this doesn't mean that her studies would have been easy emotionally. The law was certainly not a bastion of unbiased equality, and no one had gone over the curriculum with a fine-tooth comb to make sure that it reflected the spirit of the times. Some of the old cases would have likely cut Eunice deeply, like an old British case she may have studied about the status of Black people as property. But Eunice handled whatever came her way with grace and vigor, and she more or less crushed the curriculum. While the average grade was in the low 70s, she was getting grades in the mid-80s. Even though she had to take a year and a half off when her little boy got sick, she returned and finished her studies, all while working a full-time job and maintaining her appearance at all the requisite soirees. As Eunice studied, her brother Alpheus was getting himself into trouble. First of all, he was getting really into communism, which shocked, well, everyone back then who wasn't a communist. Second of all, he was really into girls. He'd actually lived with his girlfriend before marrying her, and even worse, she was an actress. And then, after marrying this actress, he openly had an affair with another woman. It didn't matter to society that he'd done incredibly well for himself. Master's degree in English from Harvard, professorship in English at Howard. He'd embarrassed the family and scandalized the matrons of Harlem. At the same time, believe it or not, his mother, the one who'd preached the gospel of staying married, was also scandalizing society by marrying a sea captain after only knowing him for a few months and then quickly divorcing him. Suddenly, the pressure of being the only Huntin with an unblemished reputation was falling onto Eunice's shoulders, and this, plus her unbelievably heavy workload, all proved too much for her. She graduated in 1932 and immediately collapsed into a heap. As one journalist wrote, getting the degree seemed to snap something in her. It was six months before she could get out of bed and two years before she could undertake what she regards as a full program. While Eunice recuperated, something was changing in Harlem, behind the scenes. Harlem had a lot of numbers rackets, run by dangerously glamorous black mobsters like Stephanie St. Clair and Bumby Johnson, but the Italian and Jewish mobsters were coming in and taking over. It was gentrification mafia style, with Smith and Wessons instead of Starbucks and West Elm. Soon enough, it seemed like every business in Harlem, not to mention the rest of the city, was paying regular money to the Italian mob, with Lucky Luciano controlling most of it. As Lucky's power consolidated, Eunice recovered and was trying to make a go of it as a lawyer, when suddenly a massive and kind of terrifying opportunity fell in her lap. 
The Republican Party needed someone to run against an incumbent Democrat in the race to be the representative of New York's 19th State Assembly District. Now, the Republicans were pretty sure they were going to lose this race, but they needed someone impressive to run anyway. And after looking around for someone young and ambitious with charm and a good public speaking voice, they picked Eunice Hunton Carter. Eunice was a lifelong Republican, just like her mother, and had been involved with politics before, but this was the first time she'd been the face of anything. She ran, and she was a hit. Papers called her exceptionally well-qualified and college-bred and unruffled. And as one columnist noted in all caps, she can't do less than the men! She was defeated, as was anticipated, but now her name was really out there. Most female lawyers in the country were struggling, shoehorned into bleak government jobs or stuck in some backwater court where they only tried crimes about sex work. It was just too hard to get the public to see them as anything more than, well, women. But her brief political run had put Eunice's name in the lights, or at least in the headlines, and soon enough she'd get her coolest role yet. Harlem was burning. As a kid in Atlanta, Eunice had experienced the terror of rioting, and now it was happening again. On March 19, 1935, a black and Puerto Rican teenager was caught shoplifting, and when he was arrested, a rumor spread that the police had killed him after a girl screamed that they were beating him and a totally unrelated hearse pulled up nearby to park. The boy was fine. But it didn't matter. It was the equivalent of shouting fire in a movie theater. People had been mad for a long time about poverty, about police brutality, about racism. And the ensuing riot was so serious that, in response, the mayor decided to form a commission to look into conditions in Harlem and try to come up with some solutions. The commission was formed, and the only woman on the commission was Eunice. The men made her secretary, of course. But no matter, her name was still being printed in the papers and her reputation was only continuing to grow. Meanwhile, the tentacles of the mob were continuing to spread. It was totally out of control, or rather, it was totally in control. And seemingly, every other cop was being bribed by it, while every other judge bowed to it and every other politician knew about it. Despite a lot of noise being made by people like activists and journalists, New York's authorities were kind of sort of not doing anything about the mob, though. It was easier for them to spend their energies arresting uh, people who kind of seemed communist or um, blue-collar workers who were trying to strike than to plunge into the wild and dangerous sea of people like Vincent Mangano, Tommy Gagliano, Joseph Bonanno, Joe Profaci, Dutch Schultz, and Bugsy Siegel. The whole ignoring the mob situation got so bad that finally a 27-member grand jury actually revolted, telling the district attorney that they wouldn't look at another stupid, pointless, did-this-person-steal-a-wallet-or-not case until someone actually started looking into the mob seriously. The pressure worked, and the authorities finally got their creaky joints in gear. The governor appointed a hot young lawyer named Thomas Dewey to be special prosecutor after four other lawyers turned down the job, perhaps due to frequent nightmares about mafia firearms being pressed to their temples. 
And Dewey, in turn, interviewed about 3,000 ambitious lawyers to put together a crack team of prosecutors. He picked 20 of them, 19 white men and one Eunice. The appointment of a black female lawyer to the team was so special, so unexpected, and so groundbreaking that papers all over the country reported on it. This was it for Eunice, right? The chance for her to finally work neck and neck with some of the best lawyers in the country, investigating the most exciting, okay, and terrifying criminals in the world. She was going to be investigating gambling and murder and secret conversations held behind storefronts and wiretaps and flipped mafia members and all that juicy stuff, right? Wrong. While everyone else on the team got to do the cool work, Dewey plopped Eunice behind a desk and told her to write down complaints that people had about brothels. The reason Eunice was so disappointed with her lackluster brothel assignment was that brothels had nothing to do with Lucky Luciano. The general consensus was that brothels were random. They worked alone. They popped up, police shut them down, they popped up somewhere else. They were run by small-time madams and pimps. No one was in charge of all the brothels. There was no organization to their crime. Yes, they were illegal, but Dewey's team wasn't there to crack down on vice. They were trying to get the mob's capos for murder, drugs, extortion, big, manly crimes. In fact, the only reason they even had someone, Eunice, on brothels was to make the concerned citizens of New York feel better. After all, there was always someone who wanted to complain about the brothel next door, and Dewey just needed someone to write down their complaints and to nod sympathetically. Yes, it must be so frustrating that they're playing that terrible new jazz music at all hours of the night. And who better to nod sympathetically and write down complaints, secretary style, than the lone woman on his team? At least Eunice was working somewhere safe. Dewey was understandably paranoid that the mafia would, well, break in and steal all their files and kill all their witnesses and probably put a few bullets in each one of his lawyers' hearts for good measure. So he made sure that the security at the office was top-notch. They had specially built doors and walls to keep out big brawny hitmen, detectives in the lobby to look out for said hitmen, separate waiting rooms so that witnesses would never see who else was there, and they always kept the blinds down so that no one could look into their office with binoculars. Guarded day and night like a Fabergé egg and probably bored out of her mind, Eunice wrote memo after memo about brothel after brothel. Again and again, the story was the same. Someone called the police on a brothel, the police shut it down, but the brothel was back the next night. Or, someone called the police on a brothel, but the police didn't come. Or, a sex worker went to court, but her defense lawyer got her off. Or, another sex worker went to court, and the same defense lawyer got her off. And the judge let her go. 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 Suddenly, after writing God knows how many thankless memos, Eunice realized something. These weren't a bunch of random complaints about petty crimes that didn't matter. She was looking at a pattern. 
It was a pattern. It was a pattern! There was no way all these tiny little brothels and all these random sex workers and all these city judges just happened to be doing the same thing over and over again. All those corrupt cops, all those crooked lawyers, all those brothels that never got shut down. There was a system in place behind them. That was the only explanation for this pattern. Something was managing them. Something big. Something organized. Eunice raced over to another member of her team, Murray Gerfine, and showed him the detailed, exhaustive work she'd done, the map of every brothel in the city, the repeating patterns. Gerfine was impressed. Her work, he said later, convinced him, quote, that the whole business of prostitution in this city is being fundamentally revised so that its control rests in the hands of a few men who are under the domination of one top-flight racketeer. Yes, brothels used to be run by individual madams and pimps, but then something else stepped in. Something bigger. The girls were no longer paying only their madam and pimp, but now had to pay $10 a week as a bonding fee, which went straight to that top-flight racketeer. A little more research showed Eunice and Gerfine that the girls didn't actually know who this guy at the top was. They just called him the boss. But it became quickly clear to Eunice and Gerfine that this unnamed boss was actually Charles Luciano, better known as Lucky. So they gathered up all their papers and went straight to their boss, Thomas Dewey. Dewey was hard to convince at first. He didn't want to be seen as some morality crusader going after petty vice instead of serious mob stuff. He also didn't think anyone could possibly control the oldest profession. It was too huge, too unwieldy, with too many players. But Eunice eventually broke him down. Sex work had changed, she said. It was organized now, which meant that this wasn't some small potatoes vice-related sting operation. This was big, and it went way up to the top, and he should really let her keep looking into it. Finally, and reluctantly, he gave the only female lawyer on his team the go-ahead. The night of February 1st, 1936, Eunice waited at the office with coffee. A lot of coffee. That night was freezing. Outside, in the cold, 160 police officers waited impatiently at various street corners. They had no idea what they were going to do. They'd just been told to show up and wait. At 8.55, the order finally came. In five minutes, at 9 p.m., they were going to be raiding 80 different brothels. The raid had to be done this way, secret and last minute, because police corruption was so bad that if the cops had known about it for more than five minutes in advance, someone would have managed to warn Lucky. Dewey had decided to test out Eunice's theory. His team hadn't been able to connect Lucky with the gambling or the drugs or the murder or the other murder or the other murder or the racketeering or any of the crimes they knew he was profiting from. So he finally agreed to go the brothel route, as Eunice had been recommending. While police burst down the brothel doors and handcuffed everyone they found there, Eunice waited at the office, ready to log the women as they arrived. And soon enough, there they were, pouring into the office in their long satin gowns, filling the air with their perfume and very upset. 
There were men with them, too, the corrupt bondsmen and fixers who would normally get them out on bail and bribe a judge to drop the charges against them. But now, with the bondsmen and fixers arrested, too, nobody could swoop in and save them, and so they had to talk. Well, at first, the girls were too terrified to even breathe the name Luciano to anyone, but slowly, over the course of weeks of interrogation, some of them began to tell stories. They told of being forced into sex work, of rape, of protection money. They told of having to kick up some of their profits to a shadowy, organized unit that controlled their industry. As usual, it was turning out to be hard to actually pin Lucky himself to any of this, as a lot of the evidence was still hearsay. But eventually, Eunice and her team found three sex workers who had actually been at meetings where Lucky discussed his work with the brothels. That was all they needed. Lucky himself was, at the moment, hiding out in Hot Springs, Arkansas, trying to bribe every official in the state of Arkansas to turn a blind eye to him and not extradite him to New York. Eventually, though, Arkansas's attorney general grabbed him by the scruff of his neck, declined his bribe of $50,000, for contrast, let's just remember that Eunice's college tuition was $200 a year, and sent him packing back to New York City where Eunice was waiting for him. Okay, Eunice herself wasn't exactly waiting for him. Even though it was her idea that had finally, finally brought the slippery and not-so-lucky-any-longer Luciano into jail, Dewey didn't pick her as one of the lawyers who would prosecute Lucky. But she was there during the trial, which was a jittery and dramatic affair. Police hid machine guns around the courthouse, worried that mafia men might try to charge in and rescue their boss. The charge against Lucky was compulsory prostitution, which meant making money from someone else's sex work. And on July 7th, he was found guilty of 62 counts of it and sentenced to 30 to 50 years in prison. Eunice might not have been the one trying him on the courtroom floor, but she was the one who got him. What set this thing off in the first place? I burn up both ends and in time there won't be nothing left to me. Wait and see. Yeah. Well, from all that I know, I might have double back. With Lucky Behind Bars, Eunice was a celebrity, and her star was only rising, or so it seemed. The next year, Dewey was appointed the District Attorney of New York County, and he made Eunice a Deputy Assistant District Attorney, which made her the first woman to ever hold such a role in the state. She received an impressive salary of $5,500 annually, which made her one of the highest-paid black lawyers in the nation, according to the press, though many of her white male co-workers were receiving a lot more. Where was her son during all of this? For long stretches of time, she'd sent him to live with relatives in New Jersey or Barbados. She was doing what she knew. Her parents, after all, had raised her the same way, putting their work first again and again. The result, though, was that Lyle Jr. grew up with a sense that his mom didn't really know what to do with him. He said he always felt like she wanted to be rid of him. There was certainly a cold side to Eunice that came out in her dealings with family and friends. Her grandson, Stephen, remembers her as judgmental and often dismissive. 
She spoke with perfect grammar, which made her sort of terrifying. She'd get impatient with those who weren't as well-spoken as she was. One of her neighbors remembers that when she went to get her hair done, she brought a book and read instead of talking to the other women and, quote, never engaged in banter or discussion. She always talked about writing a memoir, but never did it. Stephen wonders if she lacked the introspection necessary for memoir writing. After all, she lived and breathed her work, and perhaps that was part of how she survived in a world where she could succeed, but never fully, where she could be promoted, but never to the top, and where, just outside of her rarefied circle of Harlem intellectuals, there raged the world of lynchings and Jim Crow laws. Maybe she couldn't stop and think about these things. She lived entirely in her role, wrote her grandson, and so remained stern and distant, essentially unreachable. She certainly didn't seem to have the time for much maternal cooing. As became clear from all the glowing profiles of her that appeared in the paper, she was a woman on the go. She barely ate. She barely slept. Breakfast was coffee and orange juice. She often worked until 11 p.m. Her husband was quoted as saying, It's hard keeping up with her these days. The press called her one of New York's busiest women. She was not yet 40 years old. She was making good money due to all this work. The highest income one could report on the census was $5,000, and she was by now making over $6,000 a year, a solid six-figure salary today. She and Lyle kept moving to nicer and nicer apartments in nicer and nicer parts of Harlem, and she had so much space that she could entertain 60 guests at a time. And she enjoyed spending the fruits of her labor. She liked fur coats, jewelry, rare wines, traveling first class, expensive furniture. But even though her life seemed fairly straightforward, work all day, sip expensive wine at night, Eunice had a secret. Well, two secrets. Her husband was cheating on her. And she was in love with someone else. Spoiler alert. Eunice did not leave Lyle. She couldn't. The teachings of her mother ran too deep. The idea that family was central to the progress of Black communities and that Black women had to be the example for everyone else. Yes, she seemed to find motherhood a bit confining, a bit mystifying. Yes, she had dared to put her career above all else. But when it came down to the idea of actually divorcing Lyle, who was a serial flirt and seemed to always be carrying on one affair or another, she couldn't do it even though her heart ached for someone else. That someone else was Fletcher Henderson, a handsome, mustachioed jazz band leader, one of the most influential band leaders and arrangers in history. Eunice pined for him, but stayed married. She was a hard worker. She was an intelligent thinker. But she was not a rule-breaker, at least not at home. She had already tested the boundaries of her mother's idealism by having a career— And even though she and Lyle started living apart by 1940, she couldn't officially leave him, and she never would. In the meantime, her beloved career had stopped advancing. Dewey became the governor of New York and didn't take her with him. 
She desperately wanted to be made a judge, but all those prime judgeships were given to her rivals again and again. And the worst thing of all, at least in her mind, was that the reason for her career stalling was her brother. Alpheus had only grown more communist over the years, and by 1941, the FBI had a file on him that would eventually reach almost 700 pages. Now, there was not a whiff of communism about Eunice, and her name may not have even appeared in his files, but it didn't matter. For the rest of her life, Eunice firmly believed that her brother's radicalization had destroyed her career, making her someone who was too dangerous, even only by association, to hire. When their mother died, the rift between the two of them grew greater. With no immediate family to hold them together, Eunice stopped visiting him. And the career embarrassments just kept coming. She supported Dewey when he ran against Roosevelt and found herself humiliated when Dewey was defeated and Roosevelt ran away with a black vote. In general, black voters were moving over to the Democrats, and Eunice found herself suddenly looking like the old guard instead of the hot young intellectual she used to be. She lost out on yet another plum job that she would have been perfect for, and uncharacteristically, she had a public meltdown. By 1949, as she turned 50, her life seemed like it was suddenly going nowhere. She started collecting trinkets, like shot glasses, and displayed them all over her house. Her grandson called these habits, in certain ways, spooky. But... The woman who beat Lucky Luciano wasn't going to lie down and accept defeat that easily. She transformed herself into an internationalist, traveling for the National Council of Women of the United States, running the Law Committee of the International Council of Women, becoming president of the Conference of International Organizations, becoming a consultant for UNESCO, working for the UN, crisscrossing the world in her travels. Her son married, though she disapproved of the match as his wife was the daughter of a shopkeeper, and she became a grandmother. Her grandson Stephen remembers her sending him postcards from all around the world and cooking him Virginia hams on Christmas. Some nights, she was happy. Other nights, she'd get drunk and call her son and ask him to come over, where she'd tell him that Lyle was cheating on her again and that it hurt Lucky Luciano was released from prison after only 10 years since he helped out the U.S. during World War II with his connections in Italy, and he died a free man in 1962. Eunice's husband, Lyle, died the next year. Slowly, Eunice got in touch with her brother again, who was living in Zambia after a stint in prison, and the two started exchanging Christmas cards as the world swirled rapidly around them and the 60s rocketed towards the 70s and the lives that they'd both fought so hard for slowed down and grew quiet and eventually flickered out. Eunice and her brother died 10 days apart in 1970 and the busy world went on without them, forgetting who they were almost completely. Forty-four years after her death, Eunice appeared on TV. Or, at least, an actress appeared on TV playing a character who was inspired by Eunice. In 2014, during the last season of the HBO show Boardwalk Empire, viewers noticed that there was a black female lawyer in a couple of scenes, and their reactions to this ranged from incredulity to outright mockery. 
a black female lawyer working for the New York District Attorney in 1931. <laughs> yeah, right. This was political correctness gone too far, people said. What an anachronism. A black female lawyer in 1931. <laughs> no way. No way. No way. And then some of the viewers started doing some digging. And the word was passed from TV review website to TV review website that the character hadn't been anachronistic after all. There really had been a broad like that. And she was so much bigger than a character with a handful of lines on a canceled TV show. She was the woman who changed the course of mafia history, which is to say, the course of American history, and she did it all from a little desk in the back room where even the people who hired her for her intelligence still didn't think she could handle the big time. And so there she sat, night after night, reviewing papers that everyone else thought were meaningless until she saw the patterns that would bring down the luckiest man in America. That's the end of the story, friends. Oh, don't you just wish we could just all get in a time machine really quickly and travel back to the Prohibition era with our flasks, you know, strapped to our thighs under our flapper dresses and just hang out with Eunice. And I don't know, like, if we could get a party going with her and um, Zelda Fitzgerald and, like, talk about the mob and, oh, I just want to go back to that era so badly. Um, actually, it's funny how I, when I'm doing these episodes, the themes for the from the episodes just bleed into my life. Last night I was watching The Sopranos, so mafia, and I'm actually about to run out and meet a friend at a Prohibition-themed bar. So spooky. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay, how was that uh, story? I hope you guys liked it. Crime Fighting Broad number two, the totally badass Eunice Hunt and Carter. Um, okay, everyone, um, go, if you go to Instagram.com slash Criminal Broads, you can see pictures of Eunice. I'll put them there. Also, um, follow me on Instagram. It's, uh, my personal account. It's Tori, T-O-R-I, underscore, underscore, Telfer, T-E-L-F-E-R. Tori underscore Telfer was taken, so don't even want to talk about it. Um, but follow me there if you want to see some of the other things I'm working on. I just had an article come out about theories that Jack the Ripper was actually Jill the Ripper. So if you want to, like, read about that, I post that stuff on my personal Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please consider leaving me a review on iTunes. Mwah! That'd be amazing. And please consider becoming a patron. If you go to patreon.com slash criminalbroads, or the link is in the show notes, you can become a patron at the $1 level, $5 level, $10 level. It really, really helps this podcast, which is a labor of love. Um, And so, yeah, that's just... Check it out. See what you think. There's bonus episodes there and so on. And um, I have one patron to thank this this episode. Her name, my most beloved patron of this episode, is Whitley Abel. And I wrote a poem about her. No, I'm just kidding. But Whitley, thank you so much for being a patron. Really, really appreciate it. And it's great to have you on board. Thanks, as always, for listening and for being such awesome listeners. And I'll be back in two weeks with another story for you. Until then, I hope it's warm where you are. I hope the flowers are coming up. Enjoy the spring. Bye.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook Games.